True story, RGGEDU co-founder Robert Grimm once saw the great Eric Clapton in concert with surprise guests Mark Knopfler and percussionist Philip Collins. I'm serious, this is a true story. He was so compelled to dance with the musical trio that he jumped on stage only to be violently apprehended by security and spent the night in a minimum security holding cell. He never finished the concert. What a shame. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, where we talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Season 5 of the RGGEDU podcast is brought to you by MeVideo, who starts each day with one simple goal, to create really well-made, easy-to-use travel tripods in a range of sizes and materials for today's on-the-go photographers. MePhoto. Travel light. Set up fast. Have fun. Be brilliant. In this episode, we are joined with Joe Naylor from Image Rights International. International. Image Rights. And also Mike Steger, who is a lawyer uh, specializing in copyright and trademark. Joe, let's start with you. Also, hey, oh, wait, oh, oh, I almost forgot Rob Grimm. Yeah, well, how could, uh, well, I almost, God. I almost always forget you, Rob Damn, Grimm. Gary Martin, I'm so disappointed. Yeah, let's go. I, I didn't even see you. There. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Joe, do not be on his side about this. All right. <laughs> so, in this episode, we want to shine a little bit of light on copyright, specifically for photographers, the do's and don'ts, what you should do, some best practices, and we've brought in two experts. Um, in the field to talk a little bit about that. Joe, I'd like to start with you and what your company does and how you make registering your copyright and why it's important easy for photographers. Give us a little insight on that. Yeah, sure. So uh, we started Image Rights back in 2009 initially as a way to uh, help photographers look for their images online. And, uh, you know, the immediate feedback was, okay, great. Um, Now what? And so they really needed to know what they were supposed to do with uh, all these sightings, you know, how, what action could they take. And so we started uh, pursuing these claims for them. These were early days before we had partnered with any law firms. And, uh, but it wasn't long before we realized how important registration was with the U.S. Copyright Office in order to effectively pursue these claims. And, uh, and furthermore, in order to really bring in outside attorneys that would help with these cases, you know, they, they strongly required, you know, that they needed registered images. Do photographers have a legal leg to stand on without the registration, or are they just uh, SOL? They, they're not SOL, um, but they're at a severe disadvantage. Yeah. And so uh, we, we pursue claims of unregistered images all the time, but there's a real difference in what our approach is. Mm-hmm. So uh, let, let's start there, though, because I, I read a lot, and I, when I see a copyright article, especially in the comments, there's always everyone's an expert, right? Mm-hmm. So let's start there with, all right, a photographer creates an image. Technically, you have a copyright on that image, correct? The moment it's created. The moment it's created. But what happens, what happens to you if someone takes that? Walk us through what happens if you have it actually registered with the United States Copyright Office or with your country's Copyright Office, if there is one, and then what happens if it's not? So uh, let's focus on the U.S. because that's where it's real. There's a real distinction. So in the U.S., if you have not registered your image at all, you can pursue and you can try to negotiate some kind of fee, but if you're unable to resolve the case and you want to escalate it, you're not going to be able to file a complaint in federal court you have to get a registration first. So that's the first kind of point to make. 
The second is, even if it's registered, if it's not registered timely, then you don't have the opportunity to, you know, there's damages that are available to you if the image is registered timely, and we can describe that or define that better in a moment. But if it's not registered timely, you can only pursue actual damages. So, for example, what your license fee would have been for that web use, um, and disgorgement of profits. And if you're talking about online infringement, it's notoriously difficult to quantify what that know, infringement what that is, is yeah. or what the profits would be. It's not like they stole your Im- It's very different from if they stole your image and printed it on T-shirts and sold 2 million T-shirts. Yeah, then there's a pretty good case for going after a disgorgement of profits that would be of interest to an attorney. Mm-hmm. But if you're just talking about a web use, a web online infringement, that's not going to be compelling to an attorney. But if it's registered timely, and that means either registered within three months of the first date of publication um, or registered prior to the start date of the infringement, then you have the option to either pursue actual damages and disgorgement of profits or statutory damages. Uh, and you are able to pursue uh, a collection of uh, attorney's fees. Um, so once those damages are available to you, then copyright attorneys will take interest and can take on your case because they know that they can sue on behalf of the photographer and seek damages. And the statutory damages can be up to $30,000 per infringed image. Uh, and up to 150000 if it's shown to be willful infringement. And so that's where the numbers change the game. And so that doesn't mean you're going to go sue somebody and get $150,000, but it just means their financial exposure on the other side of the table greater. just went way up. And so now you have much better leverage to actually settle the thing before yeah. you actually have to go deep into the process. So what about a guy like me who has been working in the business for a long time? And let's say I've got images from 5, 10, 15 years ago that I never registered. Is it even worth doing? Or is there – or Jay Maisel, who we were with yesterday, who's got a career that he's, he's cataloging. Is it worth going through the copyright on that? It, I would assume yes. It is worth it. And uh, there's – it is worth it because of the fact that if you register, then any subsequent infringements, you know, you register timely. So right. you can go after those uh, enhanced damages, as they refer to them. Uh, the tricky part is what are your data records like on those photos? Um, do you know which ones were published and which ones weren't? Mm-hmm. Um, for the unpublished images, no problem. You just register them now as uh, unpublished, and uh, you're off and running. The published ones, if you don't have records, that can be tricky if you're going back decades. Mm-hmm. You know, because in, in years past, you know, you were required to, if it was published, that would be published with a copyright notice, for example. Um, and if it wasn't, then it, you know, I can defer to Michael on this stuff. But, uh, you know, it drops into the public domain and you, you can't be registering those. What year did that change? That year? Do you remember? Was it uh, 1978 or 9? Oh, that's, well, yeah, it's, that's it's part of the 76 Act, so, but the yeah. sort of pre-76 copyrights are very tricky, yeah. and I never remember the rules offhand. I have to go, go back and They're, look at them. You probably don't have many cases case. going back that far. I can't, I can't imagine that you Well, we have a lot of photographers going back that far, yeah. and uh, so when they submit registrations to us, those are always the ones that you know, we see, and we're like, okay, this is going to be a little bit more difficult because... When they're submitting the registration applications, they're not aware. You know, if Michael and I can't just reel off these kind of rules off the top of our heads, they're mm-hmm. not going to know. Yeah. And so we have to refer to these you know, resources and said, okay, if it was 
the American Citizen created before this year and published without a notice or with the notice between these years, then you can do this. And right. So the, it gets pretty complicated. What but, is the what is the definition? Let's define publication. Is it social media? Is it on my blog? Like what is and what isn't published? I'll defer to you on this. Well, thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite Curveball. question, I'm sure. Uh, publication <laughs> generally means uh, showing. It, it, it's a little different for photographs because most times photographs are published. They're not being published for sale. Um, other areas of copyright publication usually refers to being offered uh, for sale or actually sold in the marketplace. But uh, published for sale would, would, for a photograph, would include being offered uh, for sale, being offered out to be licensed or somehow placed in a uh, publication online, uh, used on TV, used in the context of, of some other product. Yeah. So, all right, scenario number one. Let's say I'm a photographer, and I don't, I don't sell my photography. I'm not trying to sell it or license it, but I'm taking photos of stuff, and I have a Squarespace website, and I know a little bit about SEO, and when I put a photo on my website, I tag it correctly and name it correctly. In that case, then, let's say that is a uh, Rob Grimm picture, and he's boxing. So Rob Grimm Boxer is the label of it. Then let's say somebody finds that image online through Google because Google will show you image results of how things are labeled. That's just one of the ways Google works. Let's say somebody, a huge publication, loves that shot of Rob Grimm and starts using it. And I say, that's, and I find it, that's my photo. Like, what, what, what should I do in that situation? Well, there's a safe harbor. So once you've placed it on the, on the Squarespace site, assuming that that's a public site that any, anyone can access. It would actually be, so like, uh, it would be my name, so GaryMartin.com. So I own GaryMartin.com. It's my URL. It's just my photography that I just want to show the world. But there's a picture of Rob Grimm on okay, there. But I, then, I don't need a subscription or a password correct. to access yeah, that. Yeah, it's okay, pu- so, pu- public. So once, once you published it on your website, then it is, uh, it's been published. Uh, there's a safe harbor provision, so within the first 90 days of publishing it, uh, you can apply for a copyright registration. The, okay. the effective date of a copyright registration is retroactive to the date of filing the application. And even if someone was infringing the, uh, infringing the photograph within that 90 days prior to you filing the application, as long as you got the application in within 90 days, uh, the application would be effective and you would be entitled to all the normal remedies of having a, a registration prior to infringement, such as statutory damages and attorney's fees. Does it matter that I'm a photographer that's not trying to sell my picture of the Rob Grimm boxer? No, that has no, that so, has no bearing. So I'm, 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 I have the ability to get the same amount of damages versus, let's say, now think of me as someone who's actually selling prints online and trying to make a living off of my Rob Grimm boxing photos, which he's one hell of a boxer. I am. I've been, well, I've been working on it. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if, if I'm trying to sell it or not trying to sell it. It's published on my website, or it's even, um, maybe we can get into now, how does it work with it on Facebook, which is harder to search for, but much easier to steal. Well, it, answering the pre-Facebook question, the, the way you're using it generally has no bearing on okay. what the damages would be. Um, th- there may be some more problems with proof um, because they're not, you know, it's not being used commercially, so non-statutory damages would probably be less or more difficult to prove. But uh, to refer back to what Joe was saying earlier, the statutory damages would play in, and in most 
cases that we work on, we're really looking towards statutory damages and not necessarily the uh, commercial damages. So what exactly is a statutory damage? Let's just define everything here. If the infringement is found to be willful, the statutory damages can run up to $150,000 per infringement. If it is non-willful, it, the court has the discretion to award up to $30,000 uh, in statutory damages for a non-willful infringement. And especially in a willful case, the amount of the potential damages plus the potential for an award of attorney's fees uh, is great leverage for the photographer to use uh, in terms of reaching a settlement because the defendant uh, can be in the position where the defendant may have to pay a large amount of statutory damages plus the defendant's attorney's fees plus potentially the photographer's attorney's fees. And some, sometimes in these cases, the attorney's fees uh, greatly outweigh the amount of actual damages. So it's... It, That's an important thing to know. Yeah. Yes. Incredibly confusing, but important to know. I know, yeah. I know a lot of photographers are so intimidated about the process, and there's a lot of information out there. Um, what amount of lo uh, attorneys or lawyers would take on a case if it's not actually registered with the United States Copyright Office? Is that the first thing you ask? Is it registered? Well, if we could talk about the business model a little bit. Sure. Um, we, you know, I think the attorneys typically handle these cases on a contingency basis. If, they, if the image is not registered, it would have to be, generally have to be a very prominent photographer who would command very high fees uh, in order to be looking at potential actual damages that would justify a, uh, pursuing something on a contingency basis. But you'd also take on cases where there are clear, you know, there's merchandise or homes sold based on the use of this image, you know, that could point to real profits. Homes uh, sold on the base. So you're talking yeah. about lifestyle images or real estate images that are, that are depicting. You know, somebody took, you know, some high-value, high-quality photos of a home that then used by a real estate agent to sell, a, sell the house for $10 million. I mean, you could make an argument that the use of those photos contributed to the profits generated from the sale of the home. I so, mean, sweet commission. Sweet commission. <laughs> but, uh, Is that the legal term for it, sweet commission? I believe so. An SC? I was just reading that chapter the other night. Um, that, it, that's the uh, Latin. <laughs> that's <right>. but, <laughs> right. uh, but, Michael, you, you guys would take a case if there was a clear, even if it wasn't, re you would, of course, need to register it because you couldn't file a complaint without that. But if it's not registered timely, you might still take on that case if there is an uh, opportunity to get you know, meaningful uh, damages through disgorgement of profits. Yes, and there have been several prominent cases involving use of uh, real estate photographs by uh, various actors in the real estate business, and those have been, uh, there was a, a decision, I think, early this year against Z Zillow for approximately uh, $4 million in damages. Um, wow. And, and, and as Joe was saying, when, when there is clear commercial value that can be eas relatively easily measured, like in real estate or merchandise or apparel, then there are uh, non-statutory yeah. damages that, that may be sufficient to come in there. Many of the cases that we run into, it's use of uh, photographs on websites where it's very, very difficult to determine what kind of uh, profits were involved 
uh, you know, on one page of a website that may have 10,000 active pages at, at any one time. This is interesting because I think I, I'm, so, I'm so locked into being an advertising photographer and so much of my stuff is branded. I'm automatically thinking down that road. But you're talking about real estate. You're talking about merchandising and so many other, other areas. Where are you guys finding the most – well, I guess is there a sector where more infringements are occurring? Is it real estate? Is it in merchandise on T-shirts? Where, where are you seeing more infringements than in other places? Who's the biggest violator? Yeah, well, there's a couple ways to answer this question because, uh, you know, we're out there searching for use of the content that our clients have uploaded to us. Anywhere. And so it's somewhat driven by what the content is, Mm -hmm. right? So, But in general, um, professional services, um, uh, services like pest control, I mean, gardening sites. I mean, it's just depending on the type of content. Um, travel sites are uh, you know, usual suspects. And uh, so those are industries where there's a, a law firms, frankly. We find a <laughs> lot of law firms. Um, but those are the you know, just examples of uh, commercial industries that we find a lot of infringement. Um, and then editorial infringement is rampant. So yeah. any media company out there yeah. regularly are, are most of the people who are infringing, are they doing it willfully or are they doing it unknowingly? Like are so many people unaware of the laws or are they aware and just they say, who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. I would say most of the people aren't aware. You are know, not. You know, smaller companies on down, they, okay. they don't know. But the larger companies, the, I mean, they've got legal departments. Right. They pursue their own infringements when they're infringed. Um, they know. And so they just have various levels of risk tolerance as far as how strictly they enforce internally, you know, everything must be licensed or, right. you know, whatever their, their particular policies are as far as what content they use and what they pay for. So how does it work with uh, blogs? So like a blog or news media that has a whole stable full of writers and all those writers only get paid when the views go up and for every article they write, they need an image that is going to capture your attention. So they're always out there searching for those images, right? That's how am I going to get more views? How am I going to turn this viral? Well, the first thing that a lot of them do is they search on Google, probably not um, for images that they're able to use because if you just search on Google, you're going to get the whole uh, you know, image database on the Internet for the most part. Right. So how does it work when someone basically uses an image that may or may not be copyrighted, that they don't have permission to use, for let's say you know a news article that's kind of like just for the day of a, a story. Well, if it's a, just a post or an article and it's just some regular blogger out there, um, those aren't the types of claims that we pursue. Um, well, if it's a big you know gawker, type? that's what I was going to say. That that's different. So if it's a a big media company or publication where you know, or even a, a large company that just has a blog. But that blog is clearly there. They don't hire the marketing people to maintain the blog unless it was generating a return. So it's yep. a commercial blog. Yep. Um, those we will go after. I mean, there's, there's it, really no – they may try to use that as some kind of goofy defense, but there's no distinction as far as whether or not we'd go after it. And we've run into several cases that we're working on now where it's a news-type organization who's using unlicensed – photographs without permission to illustrate stories they have but our investigations in those cases almost always find that they're 
just using the photograph because they thought it was a good photograph to go with the article, not because they have any legal right uh, through various exceptions in the Copyright Act to use the to use the photograph. Yeah. That's interesting. So here, here's something that I think we should really talk about, because the whole idea of registering your images is daunting for a lot of photographers. You've made it incredibly simple and very automated, and I, I think it's really important for our audience that you kind of explain that process and um, how you've changed it and why it's so critical to do. Yeah. So you're right. It's um, incredibly daunting and difficult if you're not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for years, we were registering photographs on behalf of our photographer clients, uh, and you know we would manually log into the Copyright Office website, what they call the ECO website, fill out the forms. Um, there's a lot of questions that are irrelevant for registering photographs, but if, you're, if you've never done it before, you don't know which questions you're supposed to be answering and mm-hmm. which ones you can skip. And uh, so a lot of photographers, well, first of all, not very many photographers even understand what's going on with registration, but the ones that actually learn about it and then you know, take the time and, and make the effort to try, they would often abort because they'd get into that really archaic website mm-hmm. and complicated form. And uh, even when we would do them, on average, it would take us about 45 minutes to complete a registration. And That's we, a lot of and, time. And we knew exactly what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and so we had to change that. And so uh, about three years ago, we... we, we built a new platform where we've integrated web search, uh, case management, um, and when we were looking at that platform, it's clear that, you know, we needed to automate registration and we needed to integrate it into this platform. Um, one, to make it easier on us, you know, yeah. just as a business. Your time, absolutely. And uh, two, um, let's make it easy enough to where photographers can register their own images um, through our interface. And so we automated it, and now our, our clients, uh, our photographers, are able to register in a matter of minutes. You know, um, maybe the first time through it takes 10, 15 minutes because they're, you know, they're, they're still kind of learning. But once they know how to use it, you can do it in two minutes. And, and this, this is really important, too. You've got, you've got a Lightroom plug-in, right? Yep. Um, this is really important because I, I think a lot of photographers are completely daunted by the task. It seems to be something that is beyond their reach, and a lot of photographers aren't that organized. Um, This is an opportunity for photographers to truly register their stuff at the get-go when they're working on those images, when they're when before they even have them finalized for their portfolio. When you're in Photoshop, when you're in Lightroom, you can actually use this plugin through Lightroom, and bam, your stuff is going to be registered fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty sweet. Um, You're sitting there, you're working on your catalog or the, the latest set of photos that you just imported. You're ready to register them, and uh, all you have to do is select the images, click on export, you know, calls up the uh, image rights uh, little prompt, and you just click submit. You, you could either just sync your images with your image rights account if you just want us to search you know, right. for the use, um, or to be searching for them once you start distributing, uh, or you click the, the button and say, go ahead and prepare the registration. And literally, you click that button, and it launches a browser tab, goes right to our site. If you're already logged in, it actually opens up the, the first page of the uh, application, and you're ready to roll. And uh, a lot of the information, so a lot of what we did to make it easy uh, and to make it faster is we've kind of culled the questions um, 
from the form that are relevant for a photographer registering photos mm-hmm. uh, or, two, or 2D artwork if you're an artist. Um, and so we boiled that down to a little one-page form. Most of the information is pre-populated because it's your own contact info. It's your address right. and whatnot. So you just type in the title, the year you created it, um, and then you click through, and then you select, is it a single image, a group of published images, or unpublished images? You click that, and then um, once you get to the third and last step, all those images are already sitting there by virtue of the uh, plug-in from Lightroom. Right. And, uh, you know... In this context, usually you haven't published them yet, so there's no additional input of you know publication date or whatnot. And so the images are there. You just click submit, and you're done. I mean, so it's literally like a minute or two. Yeah, that's incredible. The other thing that's really important about it is it, normally if you were to, to go and register your stuff, if you were to just send in a physical disk with your images on it, it could take up to 18 months for that disk to be processed, read, and you, for you to get your copyright information. You're doing this in a matter of weeks or days. It's it, so fast. Yeah, so the 18 months you're referring to is pretty interesting because that was a result of the anthrax attacks um, back in 2002, I believe. And uh, so they, they have a facility in Maryland where any physical media have to be they're mailed there and then go through security screening before they then are forwarded on. And so that, they've told us that basically the average is extended 18 months before you get your certificate. You know, fortunately, in our world, you, know, you don't have to do that most of the time with, with photos. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know, with our system, you, you submit your application – and then we actually do have internal people that do a final review of the application that our software has created on the, on the copyright office's website. And once that review is complete and paid, then uh, a signal sent back to our system where it, it packages the images, which are the deposit copies, mm-hmm. the copies of the photos you're, you're registering, and then that's just transferred instantly to, the, uh, to your application on the uh, copyright office's website, and you're done. And that's it. And... Uh, because we've done, I mean, we've done over, we've registered more than about 650,000 images since we launched the automated service two years ago. Um, and we've spoken with people at the, the copyright office, and, you know, our registrations are, because we do error checking and make sure everything's good, you know, those forms are correct. You know, that's the point. So when they're submitted, there's not a lot of back and forth. In fact, uh, Rob Kasinich, who uh, heads up the copyright division um, and all the registration policies and processes at the copyright office, uh, was speaking at an event about a month ago that I was at as well. And we were all talking about copyright registration. And uh, he was saying that of all the registration applications that come in, 40% require some level of correspondence between the examiner and the applicant because that's, of error that's brutal yeah. and that's brutal for their productivity um, and so that's why on their website they say it's six to eight months on average to get those certificates back um, because they're they're accounting for the fact that almost half of them require some kind of back and forth and so I thought that was really interesting so I went back and looked at our statistics and uh, we're at less than one percent of our wow. applications require some kind of correspondence and because of that, there's not that delay that's incurred, yeah. you know, by the back and forth. And so we typically get them back in a couple of weeks. If they get backed up, maybe it's a month or so. Um, we quite commonly get them within a few days. And we did have a – we still can't even believe it. We, we submitted a registration one Friday morning 
like first thing, and we got the certificate back on Monday. Wow, that's amazing. So, so yeah. once it's registered, are you using available technology like Google Image Search, or do you guys have your own proprietary way of looking, searching, and enforcing? Uh, yeah, we developed our own uh, web, web search uh, engines, I guess you could call them. Um, and we have multiple systems as well, so with different search paradigms. And so we have one uh, uh, web crawler that basically it's very broad-based, so it covers a lot of domains, uh, but it doesn't drill deep into these sites. Uh, then we have a whole network of servers we call our Gemini servers that um, we target specific domains and crawl the whole website. And, uh, and if we configure it, uh, for certain, let's say uh, let's say we found uh, through the broad search a site that's infringing some images, and then the, the client submit or the photographer submits the claim for us to assess, and and reviewing it we say oh hmm here's some other images that look like they might be yours, um, you know we. One thing is we really get to know our photographers, mm-hmm. you know, and so we actually we joke all the time because we see our photographers' content just in our regular lives. And we're like, hey, I wonder if that was licensed or <laughs> right. not. Um, and so we, we actually often recognize this. And so we'll go back to the photographer and say, are these yours too? You might want to upload these photos to your, to your account so that we can be finding these as well. And so um, if we find a site that's using their images and then we're pursuing the case and, and quite often when we send it to an attorney, you know, and, and the, the settlement... And the negotiations or the discussions going back and forth, you know, the other side often they want to make sure that we're not they're not going to settle, and then we're going to turn around and sue them two weeks later because we found more images. Mm-hmm. And so we'll often uh, turn our Gemini servers on those sites and do deep crawls, and we basically crawl the whole site, and that way we can pick up any other. So uh, you're like mining Bitcoin, right. in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> What's, what, how, how is it doing this? Like, what's the mechanics of it? How do your oh, your, that's the your stuff? Sauce, my friend. Oh, I want to know. <laughs> Can you tell us? Is it looking for outline? Is it looking for color? How do, how does this work? So, yeah. So that well, first you start with a genius CTO, um, and you hire him fast. Um, <laughs> so this guy was incredible. Uh, when we hired him, he had already developed his own image recognition and and search technology, and so that was the kind of the genesis of our platform today. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's taking image files and he does all this analysis and technology oriented stuff on it. Um, and then it compares elements and regions and he, he comes up with scores for how close the match is. And, uh, and if it, if it meets a certain criteria, then we report as a match. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's kind of how it's working. Uh, but the, the, the different crawlers, you just set different rules for how it's going to crawl the site. You know, is it? Is it just going to kind of skim the top? Or is mm-hmm. it going to go X levels deep? Does it go to the home page and then all the clicks down to a second level, a third level? Or does it go to all the subdomains? And so depending on what your objective is, you, you can change that up. And, uh, and so for the, the network of Gemini crawlers, for example, you know, your question about what industries are infringing the most, you know, that is something that we study because you know, when we find that there's an industry that seems to be you know, doing this a lot, then we'll go and, and get, focus on and, it. and get lists of companies in a given industry and just feed those URLs into our crawlers so that we can scan them to make sure that they're not, they're not infringing. So you've got an incredible ability to fine-tune the net that you're basically casting to catch. Oh, yeah, images. absolutely. You can, you That's can customize it. Yeah, because, yeah. you, you know, there's a 
there's a cost-benefit analysis <clears throat> for this just like there is for anything else, right? And so if, uh, you know, if you're going to crawl every page of the entire web, you know, that's incredibly expensive. And, uh, you know, but... What do you, you think could, that would cost? You know, you guys? I, I, beyond our budget, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, no, but if you can uh, cr- crawl intelligently... Um, yeah. to maximize the return. So you're hitting those sites where you get high, highest probability of infringing material, then, uh, you know, then it's a more sustainable model as a business, and you're generating more revenue for the photographers. Yeah, well, the other thing that's so important about this, photographers could never do this. You know, I mean, I, my, my licenses have been images, or my images have been licensed all over the world. There's no way I would, as an individual, have the ability to search through to see if anybody's in. Well, not with you, that attitude, Rob. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Definitely not with that. Working. <laughs> this yeah. has to be automated. So yeah. it, it fascinates me the mechanics of it and the amount of time and money you must have put in to develop this technology. It's really cool. Well, yeah, and a, a lot of what we've done is uh, we've developed a lot of AI to analyze the, the sightings that come in. And so we got this huge pipeline of sightings coming in from these different search systems that, that, we, that we've developed and deployed. And you don't want to just, I mean, think if you just did a, did a, a reverse Google image search and all the crap that comes up, mm-hmm. all these URLs and Russia and little blogs and, little, you know, you don't have time to go through all that. We don't have time to go through all that. And so the AI goes in and examines you know, where is the where is the server located? What's the IP address? What languages are on the website? What type of website is it? Have we dealt with that website before? Um, so there's all these different factors that the, the software analyzes, and then we kind of dump these sightings into different folders, and the key folder that we want our clients to focus on is the inbox. And all the sightings that appear there are on known commercial entities that we can pursue. And so if you spend your time just reviewing those, mm-hmm. you know that you're, the time you're investing as the, the photographer, is there's going to be a return on that. And so you just need to go through and figure out which ones have been licensed or not, and then those that haven't, you submit those. So not only are you finding the images for photographers, you're basically doing a risk assessment, saying this is not worth it, this is, this is probably that's, worth it, take, take a look at it, and let us know what you want to do. That's a huge part of what we do. Yeah. Yep. So. Very smart. Can we talk a little bit about sharing websites? Specifically, an example of this would be Reddit. So with Reddit, it's a website that does not actually host any files that you can download from, but it's a media sharing, so it's like uh, Napster. Um, how does that work with you know, them facilitating the sharing of uh, video or photos to download for other people? Are they, and, and does this maybe a little bit touch on what the DMCA uh, act is? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't really go after those types of uses um, because they are a little bit complicated. Why not? They keep stealing from us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you might have some comments. Uh, I don't want to comment on that because we have another case against a similar uh, technology that is being sorted out right now. So, I, I, But they're able to do that because of the DMCA, correct? And can you define a little bit about what that is? Well, the DMCA has a safe harbor provision for websites that um, house host content if a copyright owner believes that the there is infringing content. Um, the DMCA mandates that the host have a procedure where the copyright owner can notify the host uh, with what's called a takedown notice, and then the host has to notify the poster within a very short period of time that they plan to take it down. 
uh, and to act unless uh, unless the poster comes back with solid evidence why uh, why the unauthorized material should be allowed to stay up on the on the site for our audience members who don't know what the DMCA is could you define it in kind of layman terms for them it's the digital millennium copyright act and it covers a range of subjects, but for the purposes of what we're discussing today, it's uh, it, it's really a safe harbor immunity so that, um, you know, web web hosts, so your, your ISPs, um, you know, the cable companies, mm-hmm. uh, Fios, uh, companies like that that host websites are not liable for copyright infringement when they didn't do anything um, to facilitate the initial post. If they if they leave the infringing post up there and don't take it down, then they may be liable after a, uh, if, if it's not acted on within a certain period. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Good, that's helpful. So has there been, in terms of legislation, was that the biggest or latest one that has gone through? How much is our government working to change or uh, make changes to that law that, you know, that we want to see? And how do we affect change? And you're, talk, you're talking about... Uh, Copyright owners. I just, asked, I just realized I asked you like nine questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, the, the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back. That was uh, during Bill Clinton's uh, term, correct? The DMCA. Yes. That's something he passed. Yes. Has there been anything like that since then, or has that been like the last change in our law? The 1998 changes were the last significant changes uh, to the Copyright Act. Um, the Recent attempts to do anything in the realm of copyright have been met with a firestorm of opposition because of the sort of dichotomy um, between large content owners on one side, primarily uh, movie studios, uh, music companies, television studios and networks, and on the other side, technology companies and uh, large social media companies. So on, on the other side, you would have, for example, Apple, Google, Microsoft, uh, companies like that, that uh, and hardware companies that would support um, solutions that would allow content to be shared as easily as possible. The uh, What should happen in the next year or two is there was an extension of the term of copyright by 20 years and the Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act, which passed about the same time as the the DMCA. And that 20 years is going to be up fairly soon. Um, I would imagine there will be some effort in Congress to extend the term of copyright further. Um, And I would imagine there's going to be a pretty solid opposition to that, an opposition unlike what uh, Congress has ever seen for any previous extensions of the term of copyright. Yeah, because, I mean, how, how has the introduction of Facebook and every single social media sharing site where everyone's constantly posting photos, how has that changed? Because that wasn't around when the DMC Act came about, right? No, and there are, in, in some ways, the Copyright Act does not cover the, does not really adequately address the way that uh, content is shared these days. That was copyright owners is someone who's usually uh, advocating on behalf of copyright owners. Um, In my practice, the system and the Copyright Act are working fine right now. But the Copyright Act, from a layman's perspective, may not really address how 
for example, an image or music can be shared very quickly by people in a network just pressing a button. Interesting. What do you think needs to change to make it more secure? Because a lot of these laws are a little bit older. I mean, this is moving very, very quickly. Um, Facebook wasn't around when, when the DMCA was out. What do you think needs to change from a legal point of view to make, um, make it safer and, and give photographers more protection? I, I don't know that anything needs to change. I think, I think in the next year or two, we'll start seeing some court decisions that will address um, who, if anyone, is liable for you know, what I would call sharing infringement, in, especially in the photo space, where uh, you know, somebody posts an image on Facebook and then people, without, without removing the image, can share it in different formats. And if the original post of the image was infringing, whether or not all the subsequent shares would also be infringing, and if so, who's responsible, you know, who would be liable for that infringement? All right, so <clears throat> scenario number two. Is everybody ready? <laughs> We're beyond number this two. Is, this is like number 11. Well, what, whatever, <laughs> Rob Grimm. All right, let's say that I take screenshots of people's photos on Instagram, and then I print them really large, and then I sell them for $80,000 in New York galleries. Hmm, Sound what, familiar? What this, this, this sounds this, like it may be based in This fact. might be a real scenario. This might be. Do those photographers have any right to sue that person and claim damages? So what you're talking about is, is what we would commonly call appropriation art, where it's, it's one original copyrighted image that somehow is changed, and we can argue about the degree of change, but it's changed in some way and then repurposed and sold otherwhere. Yeah, so you, that change being it's a screenshot and it's got some text and it's got some other things that are part of it. So my, the original image is just part of now the new image that's printed and sold for a lot of money. Right. That's the change. Um, there continue to be cases in that front. Some of the prominent, uh, quote unquote, artists who work in that space uh, continue to be defendants in that in that uh, space. Some of the galleries that are in this very neighborhood that we're sitting in continue to be defendants in those kind of cases. Um, the defense in those cases comes down to fair use, and frequently whether uh, a judge is going to agree that the that the new work is transformative of the old work. The fair use cases tend to be very fact uh, specific. So even in the same court or the same federal circuit, you can get very different outcomes on facts that appear to be fairly similar. Uh, but the, the fair use rules are not uh, hard and fast. Um, as a lawyer, I like getting into fair use cases because it's usually a lot of work and it's very fact intensive. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think we're anywhere near having hard and fast rules as to how much an original image has to be changed in order yeah. to be uh, transformative. Have those, there been any judgments on those cases on whether the mm -hmm. photographer or the image thief or gallery has lost or won? It, there have been decisions on those cases, but they really um, depend on the facts, so I, I have not seen any real trends lately. Uh, there was a prominent decision several years ago in the uh, Carew case with uh, Richard Prince. Um, since, and that was here in the Second Circuit in New York. Since then, some of the uh, district courts have sort of walked that decision back a little bit and 
uh, have granted some more protection to the original artist. These kinds and, of and, and there are a couple other ca prominent cases in that uh, realm that are working their way up through the courts right now. Yeah, these cases blow my mind. It, to me, it just seems so clear-cut when you've literally taken somebody's Instagram image. It's 90% of the new image. I, first of all, I think it's unconscionable that they would do that and call it call it art and it just this kind of stuff drives what me crazy is art, this is this is the world we live in <laughs> I mean, people will do this yeah it's nuts all right so let's get into some uh I, I know you're a little bit pressed for time do you have a few more minutes um let's get into some and maybe this is more of a question for you because probably the attorney won't answer it but <laughs> what should the what are the steps every photographer should take to protect themselves um like what's like give me the, the top three or five or whatever yeah for sure so one is have very clearly defined written license agreements so that when you're doing a shoot for somebody you're doing some kind of a job or you're just straight up licensing the rights to use it make sure you're clearly defining what they can do you know what they're getting and what they can do with those photos I mean we see so many uh, instances of you know, this person's using my photo, they never paid, they weren't supposed to be using it this way, and there was, we always start with, well, send, send us the agreement and so we can make some kind of assessment as to whether or not we think this is, you know, pursuable, and we'll get it, and it'll, it'll be like, you know, here's the price, and that's about, literally about it. Like, they don't even describe what was licensed. You know? kidding. And, and, and sometimes it'll really, literally just be an email. Yeah. And, uh, Does that hold up? Seriously, photographers are doing that. That blows my mind. Will an email so hold up regularly? Well, to transfer copyright, you 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 know, if it's a freelance photographer, in order to transfer the copyright, there has to be a, a written agreement, and just a, an invoice for payment is not a written agreement. It would not constitute a, a transfer of the copyright, or even a, usually an unlimited license. But what if I just say in an email? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to take event photos, and you can use them for a year. And then they say, okay, and then they paid, but then they used them for five years. Would that email hold up as an agreement? Oh, oh I didn't know that I couldn't send them up by buddy. He just used it for this party, yeah. uh, you know, to just get people. That's what happens. Yeah. You think you just sent it to them for a year. So whether an email holds up or not, I guess that's a question for Michael. But the problem is it doesn't – there's no – like box yeah, yeah. that I you know, put it yeah, in. Yeah, there's no license parameter. Yeah, which is, and so then all these funky uh, scenarios tend to occur that the photographer never even imagined. Well, they need to start imagining, and they just yeah. need to, and it's not a big deal. It's just you have the right to use it in this way for this amount of time for this price, and you're done. So, Do you guys give those agreements to photographers, or where's a good resource to get those? Do I have to hire a lawyer? All right. He's pointing to himself. <laughs> yeah, and there's you know the the usual suspects like ASMP and APA and all yeah. the, the trade groups and so forth. They they usually have templates for agreements uh, for their and members. a lot of programs like Blinkbid, which is what yeah. I use for all mm -hmm. my estimating and invoicing. You can put in an image yep. license. All the it's it's all right there. It's so clearly spelled out. All right, so step getting. one, no matter what, agreement, and you're signing it, no matter if it's a small job or a big job. Yeah. Right, well, so that that's the first one. That's number, number one. Number two is keep it. Don't trash the, the, the invoice or the agreement. I mean, <laughs> Do you so, need the actual original or can you photocopy it and keep it digital? Oh, that's fine. I mean, you just need... Digital uh, yeah, so where I'm going with this is, you know, we'll have photographers submit claims to us and, uh, you know, we ask for the what their normal rate would have been for this use because that determines, that helps determine what we might demand. 
Um, and sometimes we'll get some crazy numbers. And it's like, dude, it's your image. You really market, you know, license that for 5,000 bucks for a web use for a month. And, and, uh, and they're, oh, yeah. But, you know, they're just pissed off. You know, they, yeah. they just want a lot of money, you know, from this, from this site. And, you know, we'll just say, well, sure, send us the invoices so that we can refer to that when we pursue the claim for you. Oh, uh, they don't. So, you know, hang on to your records. I mean, that's the biggest thing. And so, um, and then, so that's kind of one and two are kind of hand in hand. And then the other, uh, I'm sure photographers are trying to get tired of getting beat up on, but it's basically what we started the conversation with, which is register those images. Uh, Within 90 days of publication. Uh, yeah, I mean, work it into your workflow somehow. Whether it kind of depends on what type of content you shoot. You know, if, yeah. if you shoot it and the va- the time value, you know, yeah. curve is peak right, and you take it and you got to send it off to a publisher, you know, then you just need to make sure that you're registering those within three months. Um, Can you do it ahead of schedule? Meaning, if if I am working on a campaign for something, and I go ahead and I finish my image and I deliver it to the client, and I'm I'm using my Lightroom catalog, and I submit it then. But the client isn't actually going to use it for six months, and that's when they're, let's say, in six months their year turns on. Can I actually submit it before it's been published? Well, for sure you can, you can register it before you pass it to your client, and mm-hmm. you would register it as unpublished. Um, where it gets tricky is, you know, for example, if you, let's say you have some uh, you know, a photo agency that distributes your work for you, um, and you've You've taken all your shots, and then you send those images to your distributor. That's publication because basically you've you've now given them you've made the offer that they can reuse or display or you know license those images. So that act alone constitutes publication. Whether they actually even put it up on the website or or market the material at all, that doesn't matter. It's just the fact that you sent that it you to sent them. it to them. Yeah. So it really depends, uh, you know, what you do. For work, basically, like when you shoot images, if you have time before you need to distribute them or do whatever you're going to do with them, um, then it's always just easier to register them as, as unpublished and you're safer because you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you publish them, you do something with them, then just make sure you do it within three months. So for the f- photographers listening that have thousands of images and it goes back to five years, it's not too late for them, right? They can still... It, it's, it's not too late, but it can get really expensive. Um, and so what we tell those photographers, and we work with a lot of like rock photographers that have been shooting since the 60s. It's really cool stuff. But, uh, you know, they have decades of photos. And so that's, that can be pretty daunting. I mean, the, the argument for registering is crystal clear. You know, any future infringements you know, you're going to be registered timely and you can go after the enhanced damages and so forth. Uh, the tricky part is what are your records? Um, you know, if you've got, if you know some part of your collection is unpublished, um, you can register those as unpublished. And there's no limit to the number of images that you can submit in a single registration for a group of unpublished images. For those that are published, there's some additional um, kind of constraints. You can only register 750 at a time. They must have all been published within the same calendar year, and you need to know approximately what the, the publication date was for each photo. And so if you, if you have that information, then the next thing you, you want to look at is, okay, if you have a lot of content and you, you're 
you did well by keeping all those records so you know publication data, et cetera. The next thing is, but then you got to factor in the cost. So there's a cost to register. And so what we usually tell our clients is, let's focus on those that are your more iconic photos. So you know those have been out there for a long time, so they're much more likely to have been infringed and to be continued to be infringed. And so let's just focus on registering those images. And then as you know, time goes by and they're generating revenue from settlements and so forth, then they, you know, they just continually register more and more images, th those that make the most sense to register. And I would add that there's also a five-year uh, presumption. So if you, if, even if you miss the 90-day window, if you register within five years, the uh, certificate of registration is prima facie evidence that the uh, photographer owns the copyright in the image. And if there's litigation over that uh, image, there's a there's a presumption of ownership, but the uh, burden would be on the defendant, the infringer, to somehow prove that the registration was not valid, and that uh, can be a tough, a very tough burden for the infringer to overcome. Uh, I'm curious. Do you guys have statistics on how many photographers are infringed upon? Like when you're saying that you have to weigh the costs of. Um, actually going through and registering your images versus the amount of settlements that you'll be getting, particularly if you're creating a lot of images. How many photographers are being infringed upon? Is this so rampant that it's 100% or what are we looking at? Well, uh, or can that be answered? Uh, it's tough to answer that with certainty. Yeah. Um, but pretty much every photographer that uploads images to our service, we find, you know, if they've been out there, I mean, yeah. if somebody just started out or Know, their stuff sucks and nobody wants it. You know, we're not, there's not going to be anything to find. But right. you know, the professional photographers who we work with, their stuff is out there, and their stuff will be infringed and is infringed. It's, and a, so, sweet it's, amount, it's, it's certain, yeah. a sweet amount, It's a certain sweet amount. Yeah, I mean, oh, you can you can one assume virtually all of them. Yeah. And just in the short time that I've been working with Joe, we've had some some sets of images that have been infringed upon multiple times. That I, I I've worked on multiple multiple claims for some photographers for the same images. Wow. Do you guys have an, a, an amount or an average uh, payout for a photographer that has a registered copyright? So, you know, kind of a typical scenario is when a photographer comes to us for the first time, you know, they, they found, they've been infringed, you know, maybe they tried to do it themselves and it was just beating their head on the wall. Uh, or maybe they just reached out to their their peers, you know, through social media or whatnot, and uh, they they get directed to us. And most photographers don't register their work. Um, so the typical scenarios, they come to us, they say, "I've been infringed. Here's what I got. Um, no, it's not registered. What can you do?" And you know, we will take on claims that aren't registered because we have our own internal uh, license compliance group that can negotiate settlement fees for you. Um, so we do that for claims that don't meet the criteria for an attorney to take on, for example. Um, and so when we do settle those, you know, the typical case, we would settle for a thousand bucks, maybe two thousand bucks, and we say, you know, if this was registered and registered timely, that same case we could have passed off to an attorney, talking U.S. infringements here. Um, and what we're seeing on average there is fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for settlement. Wow, it's a and huge. So, Except for image, or well, let's let's just say a case that we settle for one or two thousand, 
quite often could have been settled for 15 or 20. And so, so 10 times. We'll have photographers come in. A lot of their settlements are done in-house, so to speak, for 1000 bucks, And then they register through us. And then six months later, all of a sudden, we're getting one so that we can pass to an attorney. And so there's, you know, statutory damages at stake. Um, and, again, it's not every photo. It's got to be some value to the photo. There's a yeah. lot of other factors at play here. But generally speaking, the average settlement there is going to be fifteen, twenty thousand plus. If you're listening to this and you're also not driving, and you're not at a computer, also going to image rights, <laughs> you, you're fucked up. <laughs> you messed up. This is so important. It's just this cannot be stated enough how important it is to register your your photography yeah. to to make sure that you are protected and that you've got somebody looking out for you. And yeah, absolutely. I, I'm always speaking on registration. I mean, yeah. it's. it's Education about registration is one of the top things that we do. It's, a, it's always been a huge focus for us, and it is so important. And, uh, you know, and that's a difficult task. When you answered my question earlier, so many people aren't even aware that they're making infringement. Large companies, they, they get it. But, so how do you educate Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they get it? Yes. Sometimes yeah. they get it. <laughs> um, sometimes they just don't want to get yeah, it. Yeah, they don't care. Yeah. Um, you know there's a lot more awareness now than yeah. when, you know, when I started this, you know, eight, nine years ago. Um, I mean, nobody was registering, it seemed like back then. Uh, but the, there generally seems to be more awareness. And so now it's, okay, the, the awareness is there, but that doesn't pay the bills. You right. still got to actually act on what you, you, the knowledge that you now have. Right. And so how do you get that out there? I mean, you know, doing things like this is great. You know, because, you know, at least we're, we're hammering the message home how important it is and, and how it can directly impact you and your livelihood. I mean, we're t these are dollars in your pocket, right. you know. Right. Um, and then, you know, just getting them the next step, telling them what they need to do, how they can do it. I mean, they don't have to come through image rights. We make it really easy, but there's other ways to do it. But okay, so I got two questions for you. How many people are in your space? How many competitors do you have? And why did you get in this business in the first place? So there's actually been an increasing number of competitors, um, but mostly internationally. Uh, okay. it, it seems to be driven by uh, local laws. So most of our competitors are in Germany, um, really? just because the, the, the laws are so regimented. And we're global. So we, you know, we have uh, law firms that we've partnered with uh, and basically every country in Europe, North America, and Australia. So we have global reach. So these are direct competitors of ours. Um, but the, the laws there are just so regimented. You know, if they infringe the photo, it's 1x the market rate of the, the, the image. If they didn't include the copyright mark, then it's 2x. And then the attorneys get a statutorily defined attorney fee. And so it's very straightforward, regimented, not a lot of thinking involved. Um, and so there's a lot of competitors that, that are propped up here, up there. And then we have a couple here in the U.S. Um, that are doing this as well. But nobody's really um, focused on registration like we have. And, uh, you know, again, we, from the very start of this company, you know, we did search, and then, oh, yeah, now we got to help them recover. And then, oh, to do this, you got to register. I mean, and so it's just ingrained in our DNA at this company. And so that's why it's so important. And then to your question, that why did I get into this? Um, yeah, I'm a technology guy. I came out of the tech space. Um, uh, but uh, I worked with a guy 
who became a very good friend of mine. And uh, he was uh, an artist back in the day. And then, uh, gosh, 15 plus years ago now, he, he became a, a photographer. He switched from doing mixed media art and so forth to photography. And so he's the one that called me up back in 2007, actually, and uh, said, hey, you know, uh, I'm online now. I'm marketing all my photos. And uh, I'm seeing my stuff everywhere. And, you know, for him back then, he was just kind of getting his, his business going, if you will. And so he just wanted accreditation. You know, he wanted sites linking back so he could license more. But uh, so the in- original intent was just let, let's build a, a web search service and, uh, you know, help people find their photos. But, you know, again, it, it wasn't long before we realized, oh, man, it's much more than just finding this stuff. It's helping them actually do something about it. And so that, that was kind of the genesis of the company. That's really cool. Uh, I love it. So in, in wrapping this combo up, what have we missed? Do you guys want to leave our audience with, with any other nuggets of knowledge? they got to be nuggets, too. <laughs> Bite-sized nuggets. D- don't read the <laughs> comment sections on articles about copyright infringement. <laughs> Perfect. I read those, and I just, I just cringe. Just it's like all these people yeah. thinking they're attorneys, and none of the information is ever right. Yeah. So just don't. You're not going to Google legal information and be able to put any trust in it. Thanks, Joe. I'm always in favor of people using actual lawyers and not not the comment section. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, And I'll back that up, especially as to to discussions of what is fair use um, are almost inevitably wrong when I see them posited by lay people. But I would just back up what Joe's been saying the whole time. The most important thing when we look at a case, whether we can take it, is whether there was a timely uh, registration. And if if there hasn't been, it there has to be some other uh, tremendous factor that would would cause us to be interested in taking the case. Yep. Well, our photographer friends, Joe and his team at Image Rights International, have really taken the work off of your plate. So there is no reason for you not to do this. It's yeah. just way too critical. Don't be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, where can we find your guys' websites and more information about you? So imagerights.com. Imagerights.com. And uh, you can find me at mrcopyright.net. All right. MrCopyright.net. I, like I could have been calling house. you Mr. Copyright like the entire it. time. Yeah. Damn, we didn't know that until oh, the end. Yeah. holding back on this, man. You guys didn't want to do any prep before the podcast. Oh, <laughs> man. Shame on us, Rob. No, shame on you. We just blew a golden no, opportunity. You blew a golden opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> this, is my, this is my bullet to take? Oh, yeah. You got You're it. No problem. I'll fall on it. All right, good. To download this episode and the rest of Season 5, you can check us out at rggedupodcast.com and also subscribe for free where we publish a new episode every Wednesday on Mm. places like iTunes and Stitcher and Google and SoundCloud. Thanks so much. I appreciate you guys coming by. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. All right, enough talk. I'm getting ravenous. I'm late for burger night. Peace out. Season 5 of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by MeVideo, who starts each day with one simple goal, to create really well-made, easy-to-use travel tripods in a range of sizes and materials for today's on-the-go photographers. MePhoto. Travel light. Set up fast. Have fun. Be brilliant.